This morning we're going to be reading from Galatians chapter 4 as we continue our walk through the book of Galatians. It's a challenging passage to understand, and so if you don't get it the first time through, hopefully by the time we get to the end of the sermon, you'll have caught what Paul is trying to say in his passage. Galatians 4.1, he says, What I'm trying to say is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Father, as we open your word this morning, as we think about what it is you have to say for us, we really know, God, that we need your spirit to help us understand. Father, Galatians is a challenging book to grasp, and we just pray that you would, through your spirit, speak to us that we may understand the message you have for us this morning. Father, just guide us in our thinking, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll start to explain that passage in a moment, but if you remember last week, we looked at Paul's statement that we are saved by Jesus' death and not our good works. We read that verse from Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. And today we're looking at sort of the other side of that. It's that question of, well, what is the place of the law? We start by reading, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And it raises that question, I think, well, if I'm a son, if I'm saved by grace and not by works, if I am not doing the works of the law, then what is the purpose of the law? What's the relationship of me to the law? What is, how do I understand the Old Testament? Those are all the kind of things that we're going to try and cover this morning in our seven hours that we have. It really raises this question, I think, and, and even Paul realizes that. If we're not under the law, what's our relationship to the Old Testament? And what's our relationship specifically to the law? And Paul sets out to answer that exact question. In Galatians 3.19, he asked the question, why then was the law given at all? And you know, the challenge is his answer was so complex that the church is still arguing about what he meant. Throughout history, people have been trying to figure out exactly what our relationship to the law is. So it's a good thing I'm preaching the sermon this morning so that we get finally an answer to all these questions. And I got to admit, I spent more time reading and struggling with the book of Galatians for the sermon series than I do for almost any other series that I've preached. 
I mean, the main commentary that I'm using for this often will get three or four different viewpoints and then choose one. So, what's our relationship to the law? Well, for example, the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages taught strongly that you had to do good things. In order to get to heaven, you had to be obedient to the law. You had to do these things, and if you don't do enough of them, well, then you could buy an indulgence. An indulgence was a, a document that cut short your time in purgatory. They believed that you, uh, when you died, you went to purgatory, you paid off the last penalty for your sin, and then you got into heaven. And if you bought this indulgence, it would just speed up that process. If you ever go to the Vatican in Rome, and if you ever go to St. Peter's Basilica, well, you see where a lot of that money went, because that's where the money to build that came from. Now, another way you could get the indulgence that didn't require you to actually pay anything was you could do something. And one of them was walking the Camino in Spain. And when Don and I did that, at the end of the walk, we got uh, an indulgence. It's written in Latin, which makes me think that probably it's only good for sins committed in Latin, which isn't as helpful as it could be. But it was this whole thing that got John Calvin and Martin Luther just got under their skin in the Reformation time. They wanted justified by faith that we read about in that part of Galatians that we started with. They wanted that to be the true story of the church. Their slogan was sole fide in Latin, or faith alone. The only problem with faith alone as a slogan is it only occurs in one place in the Bible, and that's in the book of James. In James 2.24, it says, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. Sort of awkward when you take as your slogan the, faith, the one sign that the church, that the Bible doesn't agree with in a full way. James says we're not justified by faith alone, but by what we do with what we believe. And so the question comes up, well, what is this relationship between saved by faith alone and works? And are those works described by the law? And if so, what place does the law have? And, and Paul is dealing with that in this chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians. And Paul will start to give a number of reasons for the law. But as I say, at the end of the day, it's still cryptic. He basically says two things, and there are sermon notes on the web if you want to get them and follow along with this, because it may get a little bit confusing. But what he says is, first of all, the law was added because of transgressions. Why then was the law given, he asks in Galatians 3.19. It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the province referred had come, that is, until Jesus came. But then the question comes, well, what does added because of transgressions mean? And yet, you've guessed it, throughout church history, a lot of different opinions. I mean, it could be a number of things. It could be, first of all, that the law deals with sin. Some say the purpose of the law was exactly that. It was to deal with sin. Either it restrains sin by providing some kind of a mechanism for uh, punishing sin, or more positively, when sin happens, it provides a means of covering for sin, otherwise known as the sacrificial system. Or it could be both. But reading the Old Testament, you have to say, well, if it was either one of those or both of those, it didn't do a great job. 
of either. So then others say, well, maybe it doesn't deal with sin. Maybe it simply shows us the sinfulness of sin. The law is simply there to show us the seriousness of sin. Paul says this in Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. In other words, the law didn't solve any problems with sin. It simply pointed out that we had a problem. And you may wonder, well, really? That's all it did? We needed that? Well, yeah, I think we did. We need to realize that sin exists. 1957, the top musical that year was West Side Story. It just came back on Broadway in February, just before the COVID virus shut it down. But there's a wonderful song in there, if you've ever seen the musical, or if you want to just go online and uh, Google it, it's called Officer Krupke. And it's a song about this officer arresting the juvenile delinquents who are the main characters in West Side Story, which, if you don't know the story, is about two gangs um, in New York City. And the officer Kruppi arrests this gang member, and then this song kind of goes on. He brings him to the judge, and the words of the song go, Dear kindly judge, your honor, my parents treated me rough. With all their marijuana, they won't give me a puff. They didn't want to have me, and somehow I was had. Leaping lizards, that's why I'm so bad. And then the response, Officer Krupke, you really are square. This boy doesn't need a judge. He needs an analyst care. It's just his neurosis that ought to be curbed. He's psychologically disturbed. And then in the song, as the judge, in the opinion of this court, this child is depraved on account he ain't had a normal home. And the other character says, hey, I'm depraved on account of I'm deprived. And then he goes to see a psychiatrist. Officer Krupke, you really are a slob. This boy doesn't need a doctor, just a good, honest job. Society's played him a terrible trick, and sociologically he's sick. Juvenile delinquency is purely a social disease, so take him to a social worker. Then the social worker, dear kindly social worker, they say go earn a buck, like be a soda jerker, which means like be a schmuck. It's not I'm antisocial, I'm only anti-work. Glorioski, that's why I'm a jerk. And then the female social worker sings, Officer Krupke, you've done it again. This boy doesn't need a job, he needs a year in the pen. It ain't just a question of misunderstood. Deep down inside him, he's no good. Well, it's probably more musical than you wanted this morning, but the point of it is, we have all kinds of reasons why we do things, and none of them are our fault. It's always something beyond ourselves. And yet what the Bible and the law is trying to point out to us is this revealing sin thought, is that what we do when we do something in disobedience to God is sin. In our last church, I had a prayer partner. We used to pray each week, and he had come to faith as an adult simply by reading the Bible and not knowing any better. He started at the beginning and just read his way through it. And he said as he read the Old Testament, he got more and more depressed by sin, that there didn't seem to be an answer, but there seemed to be a problem. And it wasn't until he got to the New Testament and he got to Jesus that he found the answer he'd been looking for. 
And he became a Christian out of that. And he sort of described that. He said, it's like going to a jeweler to, to buy a wedding ring or an engagement ring. And, and you see all these diamonds and they're brilliantly lit and they sparkle because they're on this black velvet cloth. And he says, that to me was the Bible. The Old Testament is the black velvet cloth that shows us the blackness of sin. And Jesus shines as that diamond in it. So this idea that, well, maybe the purpose of the law then is just to reveal sin, just to point it out. And maybe it's both. And then Paul sort of takes that and he transitions. He kind of morphs that into this idea that maybe the purpose of the law was to be a guardian. He sort of personifies it. He makes it come alive, if you want. And he pictures it as the guardian for a child. He says in Galatians 3.24, The law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified. And a little bit later in chapter 4, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This image of a guardian is, is not really part of our world. It's someone who looks after a child while the parents soar away. Now, you may not know this, but throughout history, people have been too smart to raise their own male teenagers. If you were poor, you would apprentice him out to someone and he would go live with them. And they would not only teach him a trade, they would raise him. But if you were rich, well, then you got a guardian to come and live with you. And they got to parent the little beggar. And in Paul's day, these guardians would be pretty strict and they could be pretty brutal because their job was to make a boy into a man. If you saw the series, The Crown, you, you got some of this picture when Prince Philip sends uh, Prince Charles to his old boarding school up north in Scotland. It was to make a man of him. It was a brutal situation up there. These old boarding schools all believed in the five C's. They believed in classics and Christianity. They believed in crickets, cold showers, and corporal punishment. That was the model. And that's how Paul was picturing the law. And the key point that Paul takes from that analogy is that you're not under that guardian forever. You don't spend eternity in that boarding school, though it feels like it while you're there. It's only for a limited time. It has a definite beginning. Paul says the law was introduced 430 years later, that is, after God's covenant with Abraham, and doesn't set aside the covenant previously established by God. It not only had a definite beginning, it had a definite end. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. That is Jesus. And so what Paul's trying to say to us is that whatever the law was to do in the Old Testament as this guardian, it was provisionally to deal with us and to deal with sin, to show us the seriousness of sin, as well as to guard us and to guide us towards Christ. It was never to make us right with God. It was only to reveal God to us while we waited for Jesus to come. And that's what Paul was trying to say in that passage that we read this morning. What I'm saying is 
that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, this is the Old Testament law, we were in slavery under the elemental spirit forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption and sonship. So that was the original purpose of the law. It was uh, sort of there to contain law. It was sort of there to uh, contain sin. It was sort of there to uh, promise there would be a solution to sin. It was, it was partly there as a guardian. It was partly there um, for all these reasons. And they all became fulfilled in Jesus in that sense. And it raises this question, well, if that's what the law was for, that it was until Jesus, well, what do we do with the law today? I live after Jesus. I live as someone who has made a commitment to Jesus. What happened to the law after Jesus came and died? What does it mean that I'm not under the law? Now what do I do with it? Well... Again, that hasn't been the easiest question for people to answer. Uh, there's been probably at least four different viewpoints. The first one was, well, it just doesn't apply to us as Christians. We don't even have to read the Old Testament, and we definitely don't have to read the law, because it's not for us. In our hymn books, there's this old hymn, Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled, and there is remission, cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ has redeemed us once for all. We're free from the law. Others have said, no, 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 no. It still applies. God's word is eternal. You can't just take it and say, no, that's gone. That's finished. Now we're living a different age. We, these people try to take it literally as much as possible. If you've ever read the book by A.A. Jacobs called The Year of Living Biblically, it's a book where, in a very humorous way, he tries to obey every law in the Old Testament. Um, well, he struggles, <laughs> is the bottom line on that one. And uh, we would too. So if it all doesn't apply, or it all does apply, the third way would be to kind of blend those and say, well, parts of it apply. So others have blended the first two. Well, some of it applies, specifically the moral code. And too often that meant in practice that we choose what applies. So the moral code plus whatever other parts we like. So in the past it was don't get tattooed, men should not have long hair, all those kind of things. Today we still do some of that, you know, well, capital punishment, maybe yes, maybe no, uh, polygamy, slavery. Um, you know, the whole Southern Baptist denomination started in 1845 over a dispute about whether slave-owning people could be missionaries. And there was a split from their Baptist denomination to become their own. And it's just that parts of it apply and parts of it don't. But what I think the Bible tries to teach us is what Jesus says is that he came to fulfill the law, and the law applies to us in a fulfilled sense. What Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
Okay? What does that mean? <laughs> okay, various viewpoints. The Sermon on the Mount, I think, is Jesus explaining how the law works today. I think Matthew has shaped his gospel to show us Jesus as the new Moses. He gathers all Jesus' teaching into five main sermons, which reflect the five books of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In this scheme, the Sermon on the Mount is the parallel to the law-giving on Mount Sinai. And I think the whole point of that sermon is Jesus explaining how the law fits in. And it's really that verse that is the key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. That he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So the sermon starts with who we are to be. That's the Beatitudes and the salt and light passage. And then he talks about what we are to do, how the law applies to us. And that's where he says he hasn't come to abolish, but fulfill the law. He gives then six examples of the law. Each one starts with, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Uh, you have heard it said, uh, do not murder, but I say, don't hate your brother. And then starting in chapter 6, he does six examples of what not to do. At the beginning of each of those paragraphs comes those words, do not. Three of those relate around key religious practices. Uh, giving, fasting, and prayer, the three main religious practices of the Jews of Jesus' day. And then three personal actions. Don't store up stuff. Don't worry. Don't judge. Then he has this paragraph in there about asking, seeking, and knocking. And that paragraph ends with his summary of what he's been trying to say. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And he says the golden rule as what the fulfilled law looks like. And then the sermon ends with those three warnings. Narrow and wide gates, good and bad fruit, wise and foolish builders. But the point of it all is that when Jesus came, he didn't change the law. He changed our relationship to the law. The law was good as a guardian as far as it went. But now Jesus has come, and we are no longer children who need a guardian to be with us. We are no longer under the law because God has sent Jesus, and through Jesus has sent his Spirit into our hearts. And now we're children of God. That passage we read at the beginning ends with this part. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are God's child, he has made you also an heir. In other words, everything has changed. Okay, how does the law work in all that? Well, I think when we see the ethics of the Old Testament through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount, 
we don't just bring the law straight across from the Old Testament. We see it fulfilled and deepened by Jesus and the gift of his spirit. I mean, some of it, like circumcision, we still act out. But now it's baptism as a sign that we're born again through faith in Jesus. Circumcision was the mark of a newborn Jewish baby who was part of the covenant people. Baptism is a mark of the newborn spiritual Christian who's part of God's covenant church. Some of it, like the feasts and the sacrificial system and the temple, pointed towards Jesus, and it's fulfilled in his life and death. We will celebrate communion in a few moments as a fulfillment of the feasts and a fulfillment of the sacrificial system. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. Because the temple was once that symbol of where God dwelt. He was in that holy of holies in a sense. But now that Jesus has come, that curtain has been torn. And God's presence is in us. And not only does Jesus fulfill the temple, but in some ways we do as well. Because as Paul said, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit he calls Abba Father. And now as children of God, we're led by the Spirit. And the Spirit uses the law, not as a guardian, not as a rule book, but maybe as a foundation that sort of acts like a conscience. It's maybe a lens in which we can see dimensions of God we would never know if the law didn't point it out. You know, when I was a kid, I had this book of pictures, and they were fine. They were interesting, but it came with these plastic sheets of different colors, kind of um, like the old overhead transparencies if you go back that far in life. And when you laid that plastic sheet over top of the page and looked through it at the picture, because there were different colors that changed the colors in the picture, you saw something different. And you could only see what was really there when you looked at it through that colored transparency. And I think that's sort of, at the end of the day, my picture of the law. It's not what it is in itself, but how when I look at it and I look through it, I see myself in a fresh way. And I see myself as I truly am, probably, as God sees me. I see God in fresh ways. It reveals facets of his character and personality I wouldn't know any other way. And I begin to see the outlines of a sketch map for what God wants me to become and where he wants me to go on this journey with him. And next week, we'll take a look at how the Holy Spirit uses that and how all of this deepens our relationship with God and how he uses that to guide us on, his, on our journey. But today we, we gather virtually for communion. And in communion, we're reminding ourselves of how God sent his son to redeem those under the law, that we might become his children. That no longer do we have this guardian that maybe doesn't even have our best interest at heart, but we have a loving father who cares for us in all the uncertainty of this time. And I know in the midst of all this COVID stuff, you know, all of us are starting to wonder about the future. We're starting to maybe even lose a little bit of hope. And God comes to us and reminds us that he loves us with a father's love. 
But he also, in communion, we remind ourselves of how it pictures the fulfillment of the feasts of Israel, of the sacrifices of Israel, how it's one of the ways in which Jesus fulfills the law, as he said in the Sermon on the Mount. And also it reminds us that, that one day we will see the complete fulfillment because the law is only partially fulfilled through Jesus. But one day he will come again. One day we will spend eternity with him. One day we will sit around a feast table like this. And at the end of time, we will see all of this fulfilled in Jesus. So what's the place of the law? Well, it started out as our guardian. And now it's become perhaps a way of seeing ourselves and of seeing God and a way of seeing our future. That it gives dimension. It gives a fresh understanding and a deeper awareness. It's not the rule book. But it's God's way of revealing himself to us. And it's a way of understanding a little more deeply who Jesus was. Why he came. Why his death was so significant. And even why we gather around this table this morning. To eat and drink together. To remind ourselves. That God sent his son. To redeem those under the law. That we might become his children. No longer guardians under the law but those who have received the Spirit, who cry, Abba, Father. Father God, this morning we thank you for this. We thank you for the depth of your Bible, that as we read parts of the law, it just gives us an understanding a little bit more of who you are, of what you value. Father, we thank you that all of your word reveals you, and Father, we thank you for what it reveals about ourselves. And as we come to communion, we admit, Lord, that the law shows us our sin, our need of you, our need of confession and repentance. But Father, we also thank you that it pictures through the sacrifices, through the temple, through the feasts, your great salvation through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.